Welcome to the 2017 McCorkle Lecture. It is wonderful to see you all here on a gray day, but bright in here for all of you. This lecture is in the memory of Claiborne Ross McCorkle, who was born in 1882, graduated with high honors from the law school in 1910, was a member of the Raven Society. He practiced law for a long time uh, and was a member of the Wise County Bar uh, in uh, Southwest Virginia. And he served two terms as a Commonwealth attorney. And I say this because uh, in 1920, it's important, he, he, he is a Southerner born and bred, born in 1882. In 1920, in the midst of Jim Crow, in the time of high racial violence, he prosecuted two leaders of a lynch mob at considerable risk to himself, and he secured their conviction, which was a really notable outcome at the time. There were very few prosecutions of white lynch mobs in the South in the 1920s, and even fewer that resulted in convictions, and it was considered at the time a severe blow to mob violence in Southwest Virginia, uh, and something that he was proud of throughout his life. He later participated in the writing of American Jurisprudence, a fundamental treatise, and spent a long career in legal research and editing until 1965. He died at the age of 94 in 1977. His son, George McCorkle, uh, and his wife, Hazel Webb McCorkle, funded this lecture in his honor. And his son later described how his father had equated law and justice. And when I read about him, I thought he would be pleased to hear about the person selected to give the McCorkle Lecture this year. And I'm sure that he would have very much enjoyed hearing what she has to say about black citizenship, law, and the founding. So I'm honored and thrilled to introduce Annette Gordon-Reed. Professor Gordon-Reed is a graduate of Dartmouth College and of Harvard Law School. She is a professor at Harvard, the uh, Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School, and a professor of history in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. She was previously the Carol K. Fortheimer Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and she's also served as a Harold Vivin Harmsworth Visiting Professor of American History at Queens College, Oxford. She is the author or co-author of six books, a few of which I'll talk about in a minute. There are too many honors uh, that Professor Gordon-Reed has received for me to list them all here, but a few will give you a sense of what an illustrious list it is. She has been a recipient of the Pulitzer Prize, the Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Fellowship, also known as the MacArthur Genius Awards, the National Humanities Medal, the National Book Award, this one is one of my favorites, at least in name. I don't know a lot about it. The Woman of Power and Influence Award from the National Organization for Women in New York City. Uh, she is also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I hope that these awards and honors will help make clear to those of you who don't know of Professor Gordon-Reed that it is no hyperbole when I say that she has literally transformed our understanding of and knowledge about Thomas Jefferson and the world in which Thomas Jefferson lived. In her first book about Jefferson and that world, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy, Professor Gordon-Reed explored the long controversy among historians about Jefferson's relationship with Hemings and whether he was the father of her children. The long-standing defense against that conclusion was seen as damaging to Jefferson's reputation. It was not Professor Gordon-Reed's goal to damage his reputation. It was to identify the historical assumptions that had prevented historians from being able to see the controversy clearly, to be able to sift through historical evidence without assumptions about who gets to speak, especially given their race and their status. The evidence she found, as you all know, whether you know that you know it from her or not, uh, uh, is uh, has demonstrated that Jefferson and Hemings did, in, in this book, did have some kind of a relationship and that her children were likely his children. Additional DNA evidence after she published this book uh, provided more data for that conclusion. Uh, and she really did change the way uh, Jefferson has been understood. One New York Times book review said, this is such a, a New York Times book review kind of thing, the book caused a sensation in the sedate world of Jefferson scholarship. Um, so when, uh, uh, in 2009, Professor Gordon-Reed published 
the Hemingses of Monticello, an American family, her focus shifted from the Jefferson controversy to Sally Hemings and the Hemings family more generally. She uncovered enormous new knowledge about Sally Hemings her herself and three generations of the Hemingses at Monticello. She has described as history's cruel irony that, quote, that was a quote too, that, quote, the individuals who bore the brunt of the system, the enslaved, lived under a shroud of enforced anonymity. The vast majority could neither read nor write, and they therefore left behind no documents, which are the lifeblood of the historian's craft. The voices that we would most like to hear, the voices that we most need to hear, are silent. She made the case for Sally's own agency and for the existence of a consensual romantic bond between Jefferson and Sally Hemings within the larger context of her enslavement and his ownership. These two books together transformed Monticello's own view of Jefferson and history. One review described it as, as the Hemingses of Monticello makes vividly clear, Monticello can no longer be known only as the home of a remarkable American leader, the author of the Declaration of Independence. Nor can the story of the Hemingses, whose close blood ties to our third president have been expunged from history until very recently, be left out of the telling of America's story. And in fact, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which operates Monticello, has embraced the conclusion that there was a relationship and that Jefferson fathered Hemings's children. In response, it has overhauled its exhibits, its programming, its academic research, its tours, and other materials to reflect this since 2000. And most recently, Monticello is in the process of restoring the room where historians believed Hemings slept nearby to Thomas Jefferson. I've been living in Charlottesville since I came to the University of Virginia in 2002, and I have personally witnessed the transformations uh, at Monticello over the course of many visits. And to my mind, and I'm happy to see Susan Stein here of Monticello, uh, Monticello has really been a model of how to integrate evolving knowledge and new perspectives, especially those of the enslaved laborers, into existing historical structures and historical narratives into existing histories that continue to hold up the ideals of Thomas Jefferson while complicating his biography, his history, and his humanity. Professor Gordon Reed deserves, I think, enormous credit for the transformation of Monticello and our understanding of the world of the early republic, especially here in Virginia. And indeed, in Professor Gordon Reed's latest book, Monticello is key to the story, in which she and Professor Peter Oniff, an emeritus professor here in the history department, return to Jefferson as their central subject, trying to see him as he saw himself, his struggles, his complexities, and his contradictions. These are hard topics. They're controversial topics. They are political, and they are politicized. They can easily become polemical and flat arguments, but not in Professor Gordon Reed's treatment of them. For her, they are human. They are part of human and messy stories. They're about vulnerability and difficulty and contingency. Her goal is not condemnation or blanket conclusions. Her goal is empathy and understanding. So if Professor Gordon Reed's work uh, and the accolades that she has received are largely based around uh, this period, several uh, centuries before today, her reach and insight have really extended so far beyond them and into our present. Hers is an important voice in our nation today. She assesses our present with both her characteristic empathy and the perspective that comes from her depth of historical knowledge and her keen legal acuity. And she spoke eloquently after the events of August 11th and 12th here in Charlottesville. And I want to speak on a quote um, at some length, what she said, because I really think it's worth hearing. The national tragedy that unfolded in Charlottesville last week struck at every aspect of my being. A black person, a friend, an American, and a scholar who has devoted many years to studying Jefferson, slavery at Monticello, and by extension, Charlottesville. I knew instantly why the men holding tiki torches felt the need to make their case for white supremacy by walking toward the statue of Jefferson that stands in front of the rotunda he designed for the university he dreamed about and then founded. I also knew instantly that there was a reason the much less remarked upon counter-protesters surrounded Jefferson's statue to keep the tiki torches from reaching it, staking a defiant claim in the face of superior numbers to ideas about human equality and progress that they correctly perceived were under siege that night. And she goes on, American ideals have always clashed with harsh American realities. We saw that clash on the grounds of UVA. 
But how do we continue in the face of depressing realities to allow ourselves to hold fast to the importance of having aspirations and recognize that the pursuit of high ideals, even if carried out imperfectly, offers the only real chance of bringing forth good in the world? In many ways, grappling with that question is what being a scholar of Jefferson is all about. Perhaps coming fully to grips with the paradoxes that Jefferson's life presents is what being an American is all about. These are words for us to consider well here at UVA in the wake of those events as we continue to wrestle with our own historical paradoxes with the help of the work Professor Gordon Reed has done and as we continue to pursue our highest ideals. Professor Gordon Reed is clearly a woman for all seasons and she is most definitely a woman for this season in this place. I am sure that you will agree that we are so fortunate today to welcome Annette Gordon-Reed. Please join me in that welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's really wonderful to be here. Uh, it's a great day to be indoors. And I'm glad you're here with me. I'm going to do something that my co-author, Peter Onuf, would be scandalized to see me do. I'm actually going to read a paper, which I never do. But I think that this is important enough to be precise about what it is that I'm talking about here. When Alexis de Tocqueville made his famous journey to the United States in the beginning of the 1830s with his colleague, Gustave de Beaumont, to study the penal system in the United States, he hoped to create a comparative analysis that would spark ideas about prison reform. As his journey progressed, both he and his fellow Frenchmen veered away from the project that had brought them to North America. There were good reasons for this. Tocqueville and Beaumont could hardly have come to the United States at a more defining moment in the country's history. They arrived in the midst of the age of Jackson, which heralded the rise of the common man in an expanded democracy that was in many ways fiercely defined as a white man's government. Slavery was in full force. The rights of free blacks, always tenuous, were being curtailed, and the policy of Indian removal was well on its way. The Frenchman quickly grew fascinated with American society as a whole. Instead of focusing on prisons, both men wrote books designed to explore aspects of the exotic place that made it so different from their country. Beaumont turned to fiction, producing what would become the obscure novel, Marie or Slavery in the United States, to critique what stood out as the most glaring feature of life in the still new republic, the institution of racially based chattel slavery. Tocqueville decided to look at American society more generally though he was deeply interested in slavery and race as well, and included his musings on this subject in the voluminous work of nonfiction that the journey produced, Democracy and America. As his title implies, Tocqueville wanted to take on the American experiment as a whole, commenting on its government, cultural institutions, and the mores and manners of its people. As things have turned out, Tocqueville's book, has been, been the far more influential work. The work has become ubiquitous in nonfiction works by writers who wish to find telling quotations about the basic nature of American culture. Some of those most well-known of Tocqueville's observations are contained in chapter 16 of Democracy in America, causes which mitigate the tyranny of the majority in the United States. In this chapter, Tocqueville examines the ways in which the legal system, lawyers as a class, and individual American attitude about the law help shape the contours of America's democratic republic and the American character. After discussing the central role that lawyers and judges play as leaders in the United States, particularly judges, whom he knows are, quote, armed with the power of declaring laws unconstitutional, Tocqueville describes what he considered to be the curiously strong effect that the power of legal institutions, legal actors, and law exerted over the minds of Americans in all walks of life, he writes. The influence of legal habits extends beyond the precise limits I have pointed out. 
Scarcely any political question arises in the United States that is not resolved sooner or later into a judicial question. That sound familiar? Hence, all parties are obliged to borrow in their daily controversies the ideas and even the language peculiar to judicial proceedings. As most public men are and have been legal practitioners, they introduce customs and technicalities of their profession into the management of public affairs. The jury extends this practice to all classes. The language of the law thus becomes in some measure a vulgar tongue. The spirit of the law, which is produced in the schools and courts of justice, gradually penetrates beyond their walls into the bosom of society where it descends to the lowest classes, so that at the last, so at last, the whole people contract the habits and tastes of a judicial magistrate. The language of law and legal institutions shaped Americans' individual worldviews, their expectations, and the ways in which they related to one another, in the manner that scholars have suggested that all languages shape the culture of those who speak them. Tocqueville, of course, was French and living under the continental system of law, which undoubtedly had its own unique influences upon the people who lived under that system. It made perfect sense that Americans' way of dealing with life appeared alien to him. The United States had been created by Englishmen, operating under specific and well-articulated views about the relationship between government, law, and the individual. The historian Jonathan Bush has noted when writing of England in the 17th century, the period in which the colonies and what would become the United States were developing. Quote, English society was intensely law-minded, obsessed with legal considerations, legal rights, and legal remedies. Bush continues, reflecting upon the great enthusiasm for litigation in England during the 17th and 18th centuries, and echoing what Tocqueville had to say about Americans in the 19th century. Quote, they seem to have regarded law as a means of social interaction. Unquote. So law-mindedness was in the DNA of the Americans that Tocqueville encountered on his tour through the country. But there were additional environmental influences that helped the attitude about law that Tocqueville found so salient among Americans. Influences that were the product of the way the United States came into being. As historians such as Peter S. Onuf have reminded us, the American Revolution that brought about the break with Great Britain did not instantly create a cohesive nation. It created instead a federal union of sovereign states that had joined together to make a revolution. And after the successful conclusion of that revolution, they expressed their new relationship in the Articles of Confederation, a document that spelled out on paper the precise terms of the engagement between the states at the federal level. This was necessary because the colonies turned states had different cultures, different economic systems, and different attitudes about many things. Indeed, foreshadowing the tragic difficulties that would, for a time, rupture the Union in the 1860s, James Madison went in the process of helping to fashion a federal constitution to replace the Articles of Confederation, offered that the chief difference between the states was not in physical size, but that some states had slaves and other states did not. A difference he noted that lay between the northern and southern states. Actually, northern states, all the states really had slaves in varying numbers throughout the colonial and revolutionary periods. What Madison meant was that some states were societies with slaves, and other states, like his own Virginia, were slave societies, in which the institution formed the basis of economic, social, and cultural life. The system necessarily shaped attitudes about citizenship, individual rights, and culture. The states in their various incarnations had fought over borders, and it was not inconceivable that they would have gone to war with one another in the manner and for the reasons that other sovereign states have waged war against one another throughout human history. Border skirmishes and disputes were not uncommon. Leaving the British Empire was no guarantee that the former colonies would not come into conflict. Theirs was not a single nation that had grown organically over time, simply split from a larger whole in a way that allowed them to maintain an already well-established society that could continue as it had been, but in a smaller version. Something else had to happen, something more. 
The success of a unified American government, and eventually nation, required moving beyond the unwritten constitution of Great Britain, which can actually be found in written cases, legislation, and the like, but not in one helpful, easy-to-locate document. The circumstances greatly favor the creation of a written document that expressly spelled out on paper the terms of engagement between the states, and by extension, the terms of engagement between, quote, the people, unquote, and the government. The states would be united through the mechanism of a document that drew them closer together without impinging too much upon the sovereignty of each individual unit. The Bill of Rights spelled out the terms of engagement between the federal government and citizens and strengthened the notion of the basic contractual and therefore legalistic nature of the American Republic. The process of setting the new terms of engagement played itself out at the state level to even greater effect as American federalism left much of the governance of citizens' everyday lives to the states. To a great degree, the state decided what constituted crimes and how they would be prosecuted and punished, how a family could and could not be created, and how property would be handled. After the Declaration of Independence, representatives in each state set about, with input from all levels of society, to become some suggested maybe too much input from all levels of society to write state constitutions and legislation that would set the rules by which their government would operate. The people of the states, and by this we mean white men, had the opportunity to start from the beginning to set the deal by which they would be governed. The existence of a contract or deal, actual or metaphorical, necessarily involves parties who have duties, and expectations that grow out of the perceived terms of the document. It also implies, very importantly, that the parties have come to this point voluntarily. Because the people of the early United States had a written constitution that had to be ratified in the states before it could be effective and had gone through the process of having new state constitutions written, they had every reason to think that law legality and legalisms were at the heart of their new society. And they had every right to think that the people of their kind had the power to set the terms of engagement as citizens and that certain rights that grew out of that and certain rights that grew out of their engagement were a matter of their own decision making. As Tocqueville suggested, this thing at the heart of society, law, gave the people of the United States a new identity that alter relations between individuals and the government, family members, and social classes within society, shaping how each related to one another. Creating a new vision of who they were was an imaginative enterprise. They were no longer subjects of a king. They were citizens who had, through mobilization in war and later, through debating and settling upon a new political system by agreement, come to see themselves as a voluntary political community. Very significantly for the way in which American history unfolded, the phrase, the people, referred to in the opening sentence of the Constitution of the United States, was not exactly coterminous with the people who lived in the United States. Two major groups were not treated as part of the people who were to receive the benefits of the new American compact, Native Americans and black people, enslaved and free. These groups lived in the new country but none among their members were party to the original deal that set it up. Even if they did not fully respect the culture of Native Americans or respect the rights to their land, white provincials did think of them as a defined group with leadership, culture, and a distinct way of life. Therefore, Native Americans could be constructed as a separate nation, separate nations. Indeed, there had been a history during the colonial period of treating with them as if they were nations. The rituals of law, Treaty making, land sales, combined with threatened and actual violence, formed the bases of the United States' reckoning with the Native American question. The situation of black people was quite different. The vast majority of black residents of the United States were enslaved and thus outside of civic and civil society. They did not participate in government, serve in the militia, vote, have the capacity to contract or bring suit. The framers of the Constitution reached a compromise about their status, the document itself recognizing the slaveholders' interest in their human property. The historian David Wallstreicher has argued in his book, Slavery's Constitution, 
that even some constitutional provisions that are not ostensibly about slavery were put in place to support the institution. The earliest federal naturalization statutes provided that only free white persons were eligible for American citizenship. Free status did not equate with equal citizenship for blacks in the North or the South. There had always been a relative handful of free blacks in the colonies, most of them the children of white women or descendants of white women who had children with black men in marital unions or otherwise. Under the rule part of Secretary Vantrum, the children of these unions followed the status of their free mother. The number of free blacks grew after the revolution in the wake of the lofty rhetoric about liberty, specifically the words of the Declaration of Independence. Northern states outlawed slavery through constitutional provisions and legislative acts that had immediate effect, but mainly through gradual emancipation statutes. Some recognized blacks' residents as state citizens, but they subjected them to disabilities based upon their race. Restrictions on travel, bans on participation in the militia that signaled blacks were to be considered outsiders. Certainly white women and children also lived under disabilities in all the states, but the theories supporting the creation of those incapacities were different and did not place these groups outside the realm of Republican citizenship. White men were their representatives. The Southern states' response to revolutionary rhetoric was, of course, more limited. They could not really have afforded to take the natural right to liberty of all mankind too seriously. Instead, they liberalized emancipation laws while enacting even more stringent controls over free blacks. As historian Douglas Bradburn has noted, free blacks were denizens, not citizens of the states. Throughout the North and South, legal regimes sent a basic message about the nature of black citizenship where it existed. It was a second-class form, or it did not exist at all in other locations. Thus, in the law-minded American, America of the early republic, federal and state law codified white supremacy and notions of black inferiority at all levels of government and society. Law expressed the consensus of the community about who was the true part of that community. It was not just that most black people were enslaved and lacked the ability to participate in society in ways that could justify saying that they had been parties to the terms of engagement that set up America's new government. The same could be said of many poor whites. Race, however, served as an important touchstone for this group. It was the chief basis for poor whites' identification with their social betters who could be seen as having acted on their behalf. Race had been a barrier to blacks' equal participation in American society from the beginning. Philip Morgan and other historians have noted that quite soon after the arrival of the first Africans in Jamestown in 1619, the law began to differentiate black from white, for example, giving blacks harsher penalties for crimes they committed. Law at once shapes and reflects reality. Whites saw blacks as alien and inferior. They wrote laws on that basis, and those laws reinforced, for succeeding generations, the designations of blacks as alien and inferior. This process has played itself out to one degree or another well into the 21st century. How blacks came to North America mattered greatly to the formulation of their outsider status. They had not come to the New World voluntarily with all or any of the presumptive rights of British subjects, else they would not have been eligible for chattel slavery. They were slaves and not meant to be an equal part of the polities that were formed in colonial society. The white former colonists could tell themselves a story about how they had come to America as Englishmen with rights, rebelled when those rights were violated, and created a new compact among themselves with a written expression of the rights that they would now live under. Some new, some holdovers from their English heritage. How African Americans, enslaved or free, fit into the narrative, a narrative that continues to shape attitudes and policies today. How did they do this? Thomas Jefferson very famously broached this topic in his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, in which he very infamously mused on the futures of Native Americans and African Americans in the United States. He had one answer about Native peoples. They should give up their nation status because they could and should be assimilated into whiteness and enjoy the benefits of American community and citizenship. 
If they refused to do that, he predicted they would be annihilated. Now, of course, he had a very different answer about blacks. He could not suggest amalgamation, what he called amalgamation between the races, and indeed spoke forcefully against it, saying that blacks should be emancipated. But, he wrote, when freed, he, constructing black people as male, is to be removed beyond the reach of mixture. This despite the fact that he knew personally, as one of his critics pointed out in a written uh, article that was designed to critique the notes, that slavery was the perfect incubator for interracial sex. Jefferson wrote as if it were self-evidence that blacks had no claim to America and could be moved out of the country at the will of whites. They had been brought against their will to North America to toil and for no other purpose. Once it was decided that their work was no longer needed, they should go, as there was no point for them to remain. He writes, he writes, it will probably be asked, why not retain and incorporate the blacks into the state and thus save the expense of supplying by importation of white settlers the vacancies they will leave? Deep-rooted prejudices entertained by the whites, 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained, new provocations, the real distinction which nature has made, and many other circumstances will divide us into parties and produce convulsions which will probably never end but in the extermination of the one or the other race. In addition to the racial differences that he perceived between blacks and whites, Jefferson also suggests that slaves, even after emancipation, could not have the necessary amor patrie to be the citizens of the United States, to be citizens of the United States. How could people who, be treat, who had been treated as they had been treated on these shores actually love this country? Whites would never give up their prejudices against blacks, and blacks would never forgive whites for what they had done. This vision of an ending conflict was the exact opposite of the love and affection that should exist among and within a community of people who would join their fortunes together to make a place for themselves among the nations of the earth. Blacks were not even supposed to be in the Americas. To Jefferson, enslaved Africans were a captive nation within a nation. There was no trajectory of history that he could see that could make them a party to the contract that had formed the United States. There was, he and many other people who were considered enlightened on the subject of slavery, a solution. When slaves were freed, they were to find their own place in the world and make their own nation with their own compacts. Now, delving into all of the personal complexities of Thomas Jefferson is beyond the scope of this paper, but his views on this subject must be mentioned because his discussion of the problem reveals a mindset that was not, as present-day critics of Jefferson claim, an extreme view. Jefferson was five years dead when Tocqueville arrived in the United States. The question of how blacks fit into American society was being answered along the lines that, that fit with Jefferson's thinking. The resolution of the crisis over the entry of Missouri into the Union at the dawn of the 1820s had calmed a nascent conflict about the institution of slavery and settled the status of the enslaved for the time being. As noted earlier, the rise of Andrew Jackson, the champion of the common man, saw the fortunes of free blacks fall until states that had allowed free blacks to vote began revoking that right. The phrase white man's government came into usage making black people's subordinate position even clearer. Tocqueville saw all of this and noted the role that law played in sustaining this situation. He wrote about this in chapters that for a long time were edited out of published English versions of democracy in America. Reading them, one sees why. The chapters are notes on the state of Virginia on steroids. Tocqueville's utter contempt for black people and his relentlessly bleak descriptions of the racism of white Americans complicate the picture of him as the sage foreign observer that everyone with even pretensions to an education should want to quote. There's reason to believe that Tocqueville read the notes and took matters from there to create a more sustained meditation on the inevitably tragic fates of red and black people in the United States. One sentence speaks volumes, quote, in the course of this work, my subject has often led me to speak of the Indians and the Negroes, but I've never had time to stop in order to show what place these two races occupy in the midst of the democratic people whom I was engaged in describing. Blacks and Indians were occupying a place 
in the midst of the democratic people whom he was describing. They were in the place, but clearly not of it, being distinct races from whites. Tocqueville, like Jefferson, could not imagining, imagine a functioning multiracial society. For both men to become one people, groups in society had to be able to intermingle. Anti-miscegenation laws in the colonies and new states prevented marriages between blacks and whites. The whites and blacks did cross color lines to engage in sex and have children. Those unions, born in most cases of rape and in some cases authentic connections, were extra legal, reinforcing the notion that blacks were to remain outside of the true read white American family and community. Two decades after Tocqueville left America, and more than seven de decades after Jefferson wrote notes on the state of Virginia, Supreme Court Justice Roger Taney rendered his infamous opinion in Dred Scott. There, Taney looked to law and history to explain why blacks were not actually citizens. Taney looked to his version of history to build that case, going back to the founding documents to argue that the founders never intended to include blacks as part of the people. They were not, he said, never had been, and could never be citizens of the nation or of a state. Now, as the dissent points out, Taney was clearly wrong on the matter of states and black citizenship. We not yet had the Civil War, which resulted in the passage of the 14th Amendment, which used the concept of birthright citizenship to bring former slaves, indeed all black people living in the United States, into full citizenship with rights that could not be abridged by state governments. But he was right to find it significant that state citizenship given to blacks and all states where it was given was more circumscribed than the citizenship that whites possessed. For Tawney, like Jefferson and Tocqueville as well, at the heart of the matter was the question whether the blacks could ever be included in what he called the new political family that had been created in the United States. The word family was extremely suggestive. If blacks and whites could not form legal families, the basic unit of the community together, and could not exist in local communities on an equal basis, how could they be said to be a part of the larger political family of the nation? All three men answered in their own ways and in their own venues that they could not. The invocation of family brought the question down to the most intimate and personal level and, and to what turned out to be the sorest point for people who wanted to construct black people as inferior outsiders. The irony is beyond deep. The irony is beyond deep. Southern white men had been producing children with enslaved black women since slavery began. The novelist James Baldwin, in characteristically sharp fashion, nailed it when the Southern opponent of civil rights measures, journalist James J. Kilpatrick, attempted to explain the Southern resistance to effort to desegregate the South and his opposition to interracial marriages. Baldwin said, you don't want me to marry your daughter. You mean you don't want me to marry your wife's daughter because we have been marrying your daughter for a very, very long time. And he was right. DNA testing on African-American males in communities in the, in the South has found high levels of European Y male chromosomes in them. All of the railing against interracial sex and the fear that black males were out to get white women appears as a ruse to turn attention away from the activities of white men during slavery in the decades immediately following. During Reconstruction, black legislatures in Texas called white men's bluff, introducing a bill that outlawed all interracial sex, not just interracial marriage. It was defeated. Nearly a century after Taney's decision, when Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall and other civil rights lawyers were formulating the strategy to attack legalized segregation, they deliberately chose not to go after anti-miscegenation laws and went out of their way to insist the destruction of laws against interracial marriage were not their primary objective as supporters of segregation charged. In truth, it was not their main concern, but they knew it made good sense to emphasize this point to tamp down on any anxiety that even more liberal whites might have had about making it easier for blacks and whites to marry and have children. Of course, the Civil War decided the slavery question and Reconstruction brought forth laws designed to alter the terms of engagement between and among citizens, including now four million emancipated black people. Of the three Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, the 14th con continually transforms American society in myriad ways. The deep acrimony over the war and Reconstruction has not, 
as many may be surprised to learn, totally abated. Legalized chattel slavery was destroyed, but the white supremacy encoded in the national and state laws were not, was not. The unease about black people's place in American society continues. One can argue that the fetish for the founding fathers, which I confess has aided my career enormously, the worship of the Constitution of 1789 and the original intentions of the founders make it difficult to move beyond that discomfort. No matter how many civil rights laws are passed, no matter how much progress we have made, and there has been much progress, the sense that black people are somehow alien to America has not been defeated. Tawney's bad history aside, he was not far off the mark in explaining what message one could take from the federal laws, such as the naturalization law of 1790 and state laws that made disdain for black people an official part, an official part of the legal system. They planted in the minds of many white Americans and people like Tocqueville who visited the country the idea that the American experiment, experiment was never meant to include blacks. America was a, intended to be a country for white people. What we might ask of the laws that came into being in the aftermath of the Civil War that altered the terms of the original deal that created the United States, the Civil War mentioned, uh, amendments that I mentioned above. Black soldiers fought to end slavery and preserve the Union, while the enslaved who escaped to the South escaped the South in droves destabilized the institution. The constitutional amendments passed in the wake of the war contained language that had the chance to work their way into the imaginations and minds of America's, Americans, sending the message that all people born in the United States were citizens of the country and the state where they resided and had rights that could not be abridged. Why were they and other legislative efforts not enough to eclipse the lessons that Americans had learned about blacks before the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment brought blacks into citizenship, and the 15th Amendment ensured that the right to vote could not be abridged based upon race. There are a number of answers, the first and foremost being the difficult problem of race and the determination to live by what many take to be the mutable rules of race. There's been a decided advantage to being white in America from the very beginning. Taking the Civil War amendments to their logical conclusion, and believing that they were designed to right the wrongs that had been done to blacks over the centuries would require giving up benefits of the belief that, the, that American society was contracted for by white people and was to be run primarily for the benefits of whites. It is an understatement to say that this has been a hard notion to kill. As annoying as it sometimes can be, the phrase white privilege captures the idea that there is a basic freedom to being white that does not attach to blacks. Think of the casual old phrase, I'm free, white, and 21, that conveys the message that whiteness is to be equated with freedom and blackness with something else. As I noted earlier, there's little doubt that the fetish for the 18th century founding of America grows out of a desire to hearken back to a past when black people did not count. A good part of my work has been in opposition to that notion, but the main, not so subliminal message of blacks as original outsiders and whites as the original owners of the United States is still quite powerful. White supremacy predated the republicanism, predated republicanism in America, and there should be no surprise that it is a difficult concept to remove from American society. Of course, again, we have shaken it to some degree. Barack Obama would never have been elected president if the terms of the original contract had not been altered. But the past few years have brought potent indicators that we have a very long way to go before we successfully retire the image of a sort of original or lost America that gives some people greater claims to the country than others. There's no reason to believe, as my subject Thomas Jefferson did, that progress is certain, that things will inevitably get better and better as we go forward. What did people mean when they say, in the aftermath of the election of a black man as president, that they wanted, quote, their country back, unquote, who took their country? Where did it go? What do we make of the apparent meltdown of political norms, the seeming impulse to blow the political system up in the immediate wake of the Obama presidency? What do we make of the age of Trump? The pre-Civil War world and its legal regime apparently continues to hold a lure for many Americans, not necessarily the institution of slavery, note that I say not necessarily, but the world in which blacks had no firm legally recognized standing in society. 
Of course, the Union Army could not have and did not defeat the doctrine of white supremacy. Furthermore, the amendments passed in the wake of the war were imposed on the white South. White Southerners did not want to end slavery, bring blacks into full citizenship, or give them the right to vote. Many Northerners were uneasy about these measures too. But white Southerners believed fervently, and I think many still believe today, that under a reconstituted post-war federalism, they should have been left alone to do with what they wanted that they considered to be their people. In the immediate aftermath of the war, white Southerners unleashed a torrent of violence on the former slaves, whom they viewed as their lost property, or in the case of white Southerners who had not owned slaves, property that, would no longer, that they would no longer have the opportunity to obtain. The law as they had known it supported the societal contract that had given them the right to dominate blacks. The forced abrogation of that contract was not easily accepted. As the years wore on, Southern sympathizers on the Supreme Court actively undermined the reach of the 14th Amendment, most notably with the slaughterhouse case, the so-called uh, so redeemers in the Southern states reestablished control over state governments that had for a time seen black participation at all levels of state government. And finally, after the North grew weary of the effort to incorporate the former slaves into Southern society, federal troops were removed from the South, leaving blacks to the mercy of people who then set about creating laws that even more explicitly embedded the notion of white supremacy into the legal regime. Those laws lasted into the second half of the 20th century. As historian David Blight has perceptively noted, the mania for reconciliation between the North and the South was a process that emphasized reconciliation between whites and blacks, excuse me, whites and whites in the North and the South, with no thoughts about the well-being of black people. Had Northerners and the federal government persisted in trying to achieve a fair deal for blacks under the law, there's little reason to think that the reconciliation would have come about. Once again, it was if whites of all regions were, in Tocqueville's formulation, the true democratic people of the United States, and blacks something other than that. It is now a cliche to say that the white South lost the war, but won the peace. They lost the right to have a society based on chattel slavery, but were allowed to move blacks back into a state as near as slavery as possible, furthering the association of blackness with second class or no citizenship. As the years wore on and the North moved on, Southern whites remained fixated on their defeat. They not only used law to enforce black second-class status, they used culture to promote a lost cause ideology that romanticized the South and sent the message that a grave injustice had been done to them. Through novels and most successfully in the medium of film, with movies like Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, the Southern point of view gained a currency that, even after the Civil Rights Movement, remains remarkably strong. At the same time, the story of the creation of the Civil War amendments, the activities of the Freedmen's Bureau, and all the other legislative me measures designed to make blacks truly a part of the people of the United States, has never caught on as a subject of widespread passion and interest. The men who drafted the amendments that basically rewrote the American Compact founded the version of America that we live in today are virtually unknown. When most people talk about the founders or speak of the original intent, they're almost always talking about the Constitution of 1789, the document that left slavery in place, that allowed slaveholders to cross state lines to recapture the human property, that allowed slave owners to, that allowed slave owners to count enslaved people as three-fifths of a person for purposes of determining representation in Congress. The fixation very much has to do with keeping alive the notion that blacks were never meant to be equal parts of the people, are not true citizens, and therefore do not deserve full consideration in the American story. That is why, even though de jure segregation has been destroyed, and the language of diversity and inclusion are very much present in American society, the question of blacks' citizenship, real citizenship, is vexing. Chiding the more moderate leaders and members of the civil rights movement, Malcolm X very famously asked why, if blacks were real citizens, they had to fight for their rights. A real citizen would not have to do that. You are a citizen or you are not, he said. 
But certainly the recent disputes about the application of stop and frisk in black communities, the asymmetrical prosecution of the war on drugs, the individual cases of, Tra individual cases of Trayvon Martin, Mark Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, Sandra Bland in Texas, and a host of other troubling encounters between police and African Americans, some of them videotaped, are the most visible indication that the designation of blacks as outsiders within American society, second-class citizens, continues to be, a cent be central to the American story. We should remind ourselves that slavery, which set the original terms of engagement between whites and blacks in America, was not merely a system in which enslaved blacks worked for no pay and were treated as property. It was a mechanism for social control, with whites as the presumptive controllers and blacks as the object of their power. White men in local communities who may not have owned slaves themselves were given power over blacks in day-to-day -day interactions and through mechanisms such as the slave patrol that policed blacks' movement in Southern society. The right and the deep need to police continued after slavery's end. Even in so-called free states, blacks' movements and rights were curtailed in ways that sent the message of their basic illegitimacy, that whites had power to correct or deal with them in whatever way they saw fit. If we believe that habits and customs, laws, grow out of and at times help to set mindsets, how can we doubt that these experiences unfolding over centuries do not continue to shape our views today? There is, of course, no easy answer to the question of what we have to do in order to rid ourselves of this problem. The 20th century saw a heroic movement by lawyers, judges, and others to push back against the assumptions created and sustained by the earliest incarnations of law on the American continent. Laws which sought to enforce the norms of society as they existed in the 17th and the 18th century. 20th century civil rights lawyers looked to the sources of what has been called the second founding of America in the aftermath of war, the amendments that were designed with, with a specific instrumental end in mind, to alter, alter the terms of the contract between citizens and the government and between one another. This was, of course, a much trickier proposition than using laws to simply reflect the norms of society. But it was not the norms of society in any region of the country to treat blacks as equal human beings who deserved the full panoply of citizenship rights that whites possessed. Historians are more comfortable talking about the past than speculating about what will happen in the future. The election of a black president in 2008, the greater presence of blacks at all levels of life in American society, gave every reason to be hopeful that we can eventually move beyond the original understanding about blacks' place in the American experiment. The results of the last presidential election, however, suggest that there is great longing among a good section of the American population for the original version of the American contract. Thank you. We can take some questions and uh, law professor Dean uh, Golubov will, will, will call on you. No questions? There's got to be somebody in the back. And, and I, you know, I, law professor, I, I said you would take them and then I, of course I point that's to him. How, that's that sounds good. You, go ahead. You go ahead. Mm-hmm. The idea is that America is an experiment because they moved away to, from a monarchy to a republic. Could you have a society that's based upon the consent of people who are, who are considered the governed? And it wasn't clear that it was going to work. So this was something that was new in society. And so to think of it as an experiment, and certainly people in Europe did not think it was at, at first was going to work and probably don't think it's working now. But um, no, it, to, to do something different than the way the world had been ordered and experiments can fail. They can succeed or fail. So that's the idea that it's not a, to the way I use it, that it's not a finished product. When it was country was set, that we know that this is going to go on. It didn't have to work. 
And it's a continuing experiment that I think, you know, it, it's, I don't want to say precarious, but it's something that has to be nurtured. It's the idea that it's something that you have to pay attention to. Not that you don't have to pay attention to, you know, society in, in Great Britain or, or, or UK or, or places like that, but this is a new country and uh, a volatile place. So experiment suggests to me something that is unfinished and something where the jury is, I'm mixing metaphors here, um, is still out. We don't know what the end product will be. Oh my gosh, that's a big, <laughs> solve the problems of America. Uh, I think for me, citizenship, the sort of formal things that are there, you get to vote, you get you know, rights under the Constitution, the Bill of Rights and so forth. It's a sense of belonging, a sense of community, um, that you have rights and you have duties, rights and responsibilities. And I think that's something that is not, clearly recognized or in, in not, maybe not recognized, something that people have a great deal of, uh, are, are really not sure about how to do that. I think civic part participation, I mean the, the idea of actually being able to vote and have your vote count, there are a lot of structural things that have to change before I think people can begin to feel that what they do matters. I think citizens have to think that their actions count. I mean Jefferson thought that sort of envision a society where people who were political active, uh, that the people would be actively involved in government. Um, and probably much more so, much more uh, so than realistic. But surely if you're in a situation where you think your vote doesn't matter because of gerrymandering, um, because of all kinds of structural inequalities, it plays against that. So I, I think that there are what I'm saying is I think there are some structural problems that have to be worked on before we could get to the next level of a higher level of citizenship where people actually begin to exercise those rights, see, um, uh, see the effects of their actions, and then develop a closer sense of connection to uh, your fellow citizens. I think what's happened, people are incredibly demoralized now. A number of people, people don't vote uh, because they don't think it matters. And, it's just amazing to me that people have that idea, but I can understand why uh, they think that it doesn't matter. So to me, citizenship is, they're formal things, but it's about belonging. Think that you have a connection to people, even if you don't agree with them, even if they're in another party. But we're at a point where it's not just that you disagree with somebody, they are enemies, um, mortal enemies in a way. And I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that partisanship, partisanship has a point, and there's a reason for having political parties and so forth, but we've gone beyond that. We don't have a sense of cohesiveness here. I mean, I mean European countries, we're young. We didn't have an established church. I'm not arguing for an established church, but I'm explaining what held people together. France is a secular society, but France, the act, France is a Catholic country. I mean, is a, they've basically transformed Catholicism into the, a secular form of, of state. So it's not like they've gotten rid of it, but a thousand years of doing things a certain way has given them a confidence about themselves, a sense of connection with one another that we just don't have. And it's not all our fault. It's just that a, a few centuries is not enough 
to do it. That goes to the question of experiment. I mean, we're still new, and we don't know that it's gonna that we're gonna actually get there wherever it is. But the goal would be to have a group of people who have a sense of themselves, respect for one another, that they're part of an enterprise, a common enterprise, even if they disagree. But the, it's how they disagree. But the ultimate aim is the the love of the country and the hopes that the country will be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody said yeah. <laughs> they asked Sally Hemings that. You want to go back to Africa? No. <laughs> I don't think it, I mean, the, the census, as far as Virginia goes, did not change the attitudes of, of white Virginians. Um, I don't think it made, they, they didn't jump up and say, oh, I guess these people are really patriotic and we ought to let them stay. Um, the whole notion that blacks didn't want to leave, didn't want to be here, was instrumental. I mean, it was sort of, it, this is sort of a rationalization for why um, forcing people out would not be an inhumane thing to do. I don't think it. I don't think it changed people, white Southerners' attitudes at all about about African Americans. There was no. I mean, it's interesting. I, I say this in one of my books. And Jefferson's will, I think, is such an important take on this matter. When he's asking to have five enslaved people remain in the state because he had to do that if he was going to free them, or else they would be, you know, they would be eligible for reenslavement after a year. And he says. Let them stay in Virginia because this is where their families and their connections are. And that's very, I think that's very, very powerful. He, in, a, in a sort of a, the sort of program that he has, the abstract program that he's thinking about is one thing. When he's thinking about people whom he knows and he understands their lives, he says, let them stay here because this is where their families and connections are, which is why all African Americans should have stayed here. I mean, I, I, I would imagine the first generation of people who came, who were brought over, would want to go back. But we're talking, you know, these pe the people had been here for centuries at a point. They knew nothing about Africa. So the idea that people who, you know, that Jefferson and others, the members of the American colonial uh, Colonization Society, which he, really, he never joined, but the idea that they could say that blacks would want to leave uh, I think it was wholly instrumental on their part. That's what they wanted to, to believe. It, there's no evidence to think that white blacks, except a few blacks, there, there were some blacks who did want to go back and did go back to Liberia, but the vast majority of black people did not, did not want that. I think law has great power to change society, but not as quickly as we would like for it to change. Um, the people who, the so-called radical Republicans, I mean, it's amazing. You sort of think, everybody assumes that the past was always worse and more draconian. I mean, these were people who were very, very forward-thinking about the way society could be. Uh, and they were, in some way, obviously running ahead of lots of people. They wanted to pass the laws, but not actually you know, most people were not going to, to see that they would be, be effectuated. I think law is powerful, but it takes time. You can't change people's hearts. 
but it could create a con condition where people have gradually grow. I mean, law is conservative. It's a conservative profession. It's a conservative thing. I mean, otherwise we, you know, we get axes and we run after each other and the powerful people win. And I mean, you have to, I mean, there's nothing else but that. I mean, there, there, there are other things, but there are other things we don't want to go there. I mean, the, the rule of law is important. And it, even if it's not something that is instantly transformative, I think it's important. I mean, I know it's important. I know it's powerful. I mean, I integrated our public schools in my school district. You know, before I went to school, I went to the white school and I was the only black kid in the white school. And I understood even at that time that this was a transformative thing, that it meant something. And of course you had to have, you know, my grandmother who was very, very extravagant went out and bought me a bunch of clothes. All, I mean, you had to be dressed to the, you know, and everything, you have to make all A's and you, know, you have to do all this kind of stuff because I understood that this was something that was meaningful. So I, I, think, pow, I think law is very powerful, but it's, it's conservative. It's the alternative to just, you know, might makes right. There's no question. I mean, it's not. It was not just a, against black people. It was against Jewish. Jews not. Jews will not replace us. You will not replace us. Um, they're seen. Jewish people are seen as the other by them in the same way that they, anybody who is not their understanding of a white Aryan type, um, was a threat. So those things have always been together, and that's why African Americans and Jewish people. I mean, Jewish people were very much involved in the civil rights movement because people understood, I mean, they understood that if you come for one, you're coming for other people as well. Um, it's a particular notion of a ra racial hierarchy that sweeps blacks and Jewish people together. And that's, um, I think it surprised people. Yeah, I think people thought of it mainly just that they're here for, to talk about black people, uh, to pick a place, a place that had been a slave state but to see this sort of program overall shows that it's not just about one group of people, that we really are, many people are touched by this kind of thing. And hatred is not limited to one group. Please join me in thanking 